Thank you very much. You're very kind. Hey, it's great to uh, be back with you guys. And uh, for those of you who I don't know, uh, you don't know me, I, I thought maybe I'd just introduce myself uh, at the start by having a little bit of fun. Is, is that right, if you have some fun? Yeah, okay. So I thought I'd just tell you um, that every year, at least once a year, I make a point of swimming in the sea somewhere off the UK coast. And, of course, you know, on that one week that you choose to go to the coast, on the one day that you choose to drive to the coast, it might well be, given the British weather, quite cold, yeah? I mean, maybe quite overcast, quite dark, threatening, clouds, waves. And so um, maybe you can imagine the scene as I'm driving with my lovely wife, Julia, and our four lovely children towards the coast, and as we're getting closer and closer and the dark storm clouds are closing in, maybe one of the children will pipe up and say, Daddy, um, it's looking pretty dark. Looks pretty cold. Are you sure you're going to be okay swimming in the sea? And I'll reply, oh, don't you worry your little head about that. Daddy's seen far, more, far worse over the years. Daddy will always swim in the sea. And then, of course, we'll arrive at the coast and we'll park up in the car and I'll change out of my clothes. And maybe as I walk towards the waves, my wife and kids will huddle in the car, you know, around the heater, you know, trying to survive. And I, by stark contrast, will march bravely towards the waves. And as I quite often, this is not an exaggeration, quite often there will be no one. No one swimming in the sea. I mean, maybe a couple of people in wetsuits running out of the sea, you know, because it's so cold. But I walk past, they're kind of bemused as they see me without a wetsuit, walk, walking straight towards the waves. Now, when I get there, I mean, obviously there are some people who, as they approach the cold water, will kind of very gingerly sort of tend to, ooh, ooh, you know, that sort of thing, you know. You know but I'm not like that, no. I think you'll be quite impressed. Um, what, what I do is much quite confidently to what you know irrespective of the feelings of coldness and as the first wave approaches the large wave approaches i take a stance that i call defying the elements <laughs> and i will stand like this and as the first wave comes i like to kind of picture myself as sort of like a bit of granite rock you know like this and the wave will bash against me and i'm completely unmoved you know all my weight through this back leg completely unmoved and then what i always do at this point which you might think is strange but i feel is kind of normal is i will then talk to the weather i will taunt i will mock i will deride the weather i'll say quite loudly i'll say because there's nobody else around quite loudly i'll say ha is that all you've got come on and I'll take another couple of steps, another big wave approaches. Again, same position, defying the elements. Stand like this, and the wave will, you know, I just remain unmoved. Now, because I'm being so brave, um, I actually require my wife, Julia, to video from the car uh, what's going on. Yeah, because I think it's important that maybe, you know, great-grandchildren that may come along will they can kind of find out how brave great-grandpa really was. You know, they actually got the video there. So we've got lots of annual videos. And I like to pick, when I'm, when I'm there defying the elements like this, I like to imagine maybe back on the promenade, there's like a, a boy with his dad going along, you know, sheltering under an umbrella with their cagoules on, battening down the hatches. And then I like to imagine the boy will see me out there in the waves. And I imagine the boy says, Daddy, I can't believe it, Daddy, look. Look at that brave man out there in the sea. Look how brave he's being, swimming in the sea. And then the dad, I kind of imagine the dad says, yes, and son, and I hope one day 
I could be as brave as him. And then they kind of march on a little bit further. Now, I mean, obviously, I can tell you're impressed, and that's quite appropriate. Um, but you might be wondering, Adrian, you seem quite keen to tell us about this one day. You seem rather keen to tell everybody about the one day when you do defy the elements. You might be wondering, Adrian, what about the other 364 days? Are you defying the elements then? Are you being quite, are you, are you letting the, the waves crash against you unmoved? And the truth is that actually there are loads of occasions when I've given my wife and kids no reason to be proud of me. These are the times in my life when I haven't defied the elements. These are the times in my life when I've let the waves of life crash over me. What about those days? And you know, in the last few years, maybe the last three or four years, I've actually found a practical thing that I can do that has helped me to withstand the waves of life. And actually, I've found since I started doing this, I've started to enjoy the Christian life even more than I used to before. And it's actually a practical thing that all of us can do. Maybe many of you, or perhaps all of you, are already doing this. But it's actually mentioned twice in our passage from Ephesians 5. So why don't we have a look at this? We'll read these 20 verses together, and then we'll have a look at them in a bit more detail. So we're picking up in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, Follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. In fact, Nathan mentioned that in one of his prayers a few minutes ago. But among you, Paul says, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And believe it or not, the simple practice of verbally giving thanks, that's the thing that's really helped me. We'll come back to it in verse 20. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for... Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Oh, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it said, Wake up, sleeper! Rise from the dead! Christ will shine on you! Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity." Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. That's the verse that Sean started our service with this morning. Always giving thanks, here we go again, to God the Father for everything. That's the practical key, I think, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So one way we could kind of divide up these 20 verses, think about them, would be like this. Earlier in, our, uh, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul has said, you Ephesian Christians, you used to have, before you were Christians, you used to have an old ruler. This is chapter 2, verse 2. But now he's been explaining, now you're in Christ, you've got a new identity. So seeing as you have got a new identity, why don't you live as if you really have got this new identity? So, for example, you are dearly loved children, so live like you're a dearly loved child. You are pure, so live a pure life. You, you are light, so live like you're light. And while you're doing it, out loud, give thanks to God the Father for everything. Let's pitch in then at the starting point. This is a key foundation for everything that follows. You are dearly loved children. Can I ask you, are you really, truly, deeply convinced that God really does love you? Let's imagine for a moment that uh, one of our four children loves climbing trees, yeah? Let's imagine that she's up a tree, and then sadly, she falls. And as she's falling through the tree, she holds on to a branch as she's falling, and now she's clinging on with her fingertips to this branch, and any minute now, she's going to slip and fall all the way to the ground. She's going to break her leg, break her arm. And so, understandably, she cries out, Daddy! Daddy! Help! I'm about to fall! Help! What kind of father would I be if in response to this genuine cry from my own child, I were to reply, yeah, all right, all right, keep your voice down, hang on a minute. And then I turn to my lovely wife. Incidentally, I call my wife, Julia, the special one, or, or spesh for short. In fact, she, she also calls me the special one, or, or spesh for short. So I, I, I hear this cry, daddy, daddy, help. And I say, yeah, all right. Thanks very much. Keep your voice down. Now, Spesh, would you say that every week for the past eight weeks, every week she has tidied her bedroom? Daddy, Daddy, help. I'm about to fall. Daddy, come quickly. Yeah, all right. I heard you the first time. Thank you very much. And I turn to my wife and I say, now, Spesh, would you say that every day for the past eight weeks, that every day she's always been nice to her sisters? No. You know that because she's a dearly loved child, I'm straight, if I can help, I'm straight there. So if we are really convinced that God dearly loves us, your dearly loved child, that's great. And you'll probably feel motivated by verses 3 to 20. But if you're still thinking that maybe if I tidy my bedroom regularly enough, and if I actually am I nice to my sisters all the time, and all sorts of other behaviors that are probably also all good things, maybe you'll earn God's love. Oh, we don't get past the starting block. No, this is the first thing. We are dearly loved children. You might say, okay, I'm new to all this. Give me a solid reason to think that God really does love me. Paul anticipates your question and reminds us this is what God has done. What God's done is he has sent his son, his son, Jesus Christ, into human history. And 
Because Paul's Jewish, he's thinking about the book of Leviticus. Now, in the book of Leviticus, there are various sacrifices. Um, things get burnt, offerings, yeah? And of these five offerings in the book of Leviticus, the first three are described as creating an aroma that is pleasing to the Lord. So, imagine Paul's mind, as, he's, as, as Paul is writing these verses, Paul is thinking of a sweet-smelling savour. That's what the authorised translation, uh, the, or what the Americans call the, the King James version of the Bible. It talks about a sweet-smelling savour that, if you like, fills the whole room. Yeah, So, that's the backdrop to these verses. That as we're listening to all that Jesus Christ has done, this aroma is going up, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Jesus Christ loved us and died for us, and if God loves us that much, then he must be a loving father. So what should we do? Well, one of the things that would be appropriate for us to do is, Paul says, to avoid, and there shouldn't even be a hint of, sexual immorality. Now let's imagine that somebody walks into the room right now. You've not heard anything of the previous part of the meeting, and you're just coming in now. If you've been brought up like me, here in this country, you might well be thinking, oh no, this is exactly what I feared. Because like me, you've been brought up to think that Christians have a view of sex, that sex is in some way dirty. I mean, even sordid. Christians view sex as being uh, disgusting, uh, or even if it's not dirty and sordid, it's, it's, at the very least it's embarrassing. So it's not just dirty and, oh gosh, oh, oh, I don't really want to think about it, but it's also rather embarrassing. Let's just avoid it at all costs. But then when I became a Christian and I started to read the New Testament for myself, I discovered that exactly the opposite is the case. No, actually, in the New Testament, sex is held up as being a beautiful gift from God. It's a wonderful, pure thing about which we should not be in the least bit embarrassed. In fact, even later on in the same chapter in Ephesians 5, if we keep on reading, we'll find that when Paul is talking about two things, so here's two things he's talking about later on. He's talking about a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, they've got married, they come together in sexual union. Okay, that's one thing he talks about. He's also talking in the same uh, verse even about how the world will end. How the world will end is, according to the Bible, that Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is going to marry the church. That's us. Okay, so that's how it's all going to pan out in the end. This is how the world ends. Now, you and I would think, okay, a newly married couple having sex on their wedding night somewhere, that's one thing. How the world will end when Jesus Christ marries the church, that's something else, not as far as the Bible's concerned. As far as Paul is concerned, these two things are so similar, so holy, so wonderful, that when he talks about them both in the same breath, he actually gets muddled up. He has to clarify which of the two things he's talking about because they're both so similar. It's such a wonderful thing when a husband and wife come together. It's such a holy, wonderful thing. And it's also a wonderful thing when Jesus marries the church. So the Christian story ends in Revelation chapter 19 with a wedding. With Jesus marrying the church. And so sex is presented in the Bible as, get ready, God's 
hint, God's signpost of how wonderful it will be to know God and enjoy Him forever in heaven. Sex is God's hint, God's signpost, giving us an idea, an echo of how wonderful it will be to know God and enjoy Him forever in heaven. So if that is really what sex is, well, it really would be inappropriate for Christians of all people, knowing all this, to then abuse or misuse sex. So that's why there shouldn't be, even be a hint of sexual immorality. And in fact, immorality, impurity, greed, these are all, Paul says, improper. In fact, he says here, they're out of place. Paul says in verse 5, it's like idolatry. Now, as it happens, I've actually got some idols here. I've got uh, a little Egyptian god. I mean, not an actual Egyptian god. It's like an image of an idol. An idol of an I'm sorry about my shrine. I have, this is my shrine. As you can see, it's a rather kind of improvised shrine, sort of <laughs> casting around the kids' bedrooms uh, on the way, trying to think. So here's my little shrine. I've got my Egyptian god. I've got a little Norse god. I'm sorry you can't quite see him, but he's, he's a little Norse god. So I put him there in the shrine. And then I've also got a Ganesh, little Hindu god. So I'm going to put him in my shrine as well. And uh, so here's my question to you. We've got our shrine. We've got our idols. Here's my question to you. How would you feel if I were at this point to bow down and worship these idols this morning, right now? How would you feel? You'd feel, oh, Adrian. Uh, I think we might already have gone too far with this illustration. <laughs> you'd think, uh, Adrian, uh, perhaps you didn't notice we had the time of singing worship to Jesus as God. Did, were you in the room for that? Uh, you might think, uh, really, uh, are you really going to bow down? And I'd say, well, uh, what's the problem? And you'd say, what's the problem? I mean, Adrian, there has been a Christian church here on Queen's Road for 150 years worshipping Jesus as God. Just think about all the Sundays. 150 years of Sundays Look at all of those Sundays, 150 years of Sundays. There has never, ever been a time, Adrian, when Egyptian, Norse, and, and Hindu gods have been worshipped in the sermon, ever. And now you're going to bow down and worship these idols in the talk? Adrian, it's wildly inappropriate. Paul says, ah, you've got verse 5. It's idolatry. It's completely out of place. That's exactly his point. Greed, immorality, impurity. And I don't know what's a good illustration from your life. Maybe you work in an office and, I don't know, maybe there's some people gathering around somebody, somebody's phone. They're looking at something on their phone, an image of something. And you, you can't see what they're looking at, but you can... As people are gathering and calling you over, you can kind of get an idea of what sort of thing might be on that guy's phone because of the laughter, because of the kind of comments you're overhearing. And they say, oh, come over and have a look. And you're thinking, well, I could come over and have a look because I don't actually know what is on his phone. But that's not who I am. I am light. That's who I am. 
I am light. I don't know what's a good illustration. A good illustration from my, from my life of impurity would be, I think, the first 20 years of my Christian life, major kind of impurity in my life was arrogance and pride. Now, you might think, gosh, that's really quite a long time to be a Christian and still be arrogant and proud. I would agree with you. I think it's terrible. 20 years, but eventually, after 20 years, I thought I really made some progress, and maybe I kind of got through that. Now, at that point, if you'd asked me, Adrian, how are you doing with that whole business of like forgiving people who offend you, you know, like being quick to forgive and not holding grudges and not becoming bitter? How are you doing at that? And I would have said, you know, I think I'm okay with that. Genuinely, if you put me under a lie detector test, I would have said, yeah, I think I'm okay with that. But then I discovered, actually, I was really bad at forgiving people, really bad at quickly forgiving and moving on and not holding grudges and so on. And I would say it's only been in the last two years since 2017 that I feel like I've really made real progress in that area. So that's some impurity in my life. So now it's time for me to wake up. It's time for me to be careful how I live. Not to be unwise, but not being foolish anymore. I've got to understand what the Lord's will is. I've got to walk free from arrogance and pride and unforgiveness. Okay, let's look at this last verse where our passage ends with this wonderful practical next step. Giving thanks to God the Father. You might think there's a lot of do nots. Don't do this, don't do the other. If I'm not doing all this stuff, I'm not worshipping the idols, what am I doing? Well, here's, here's what you do instead. It's thanksgiving, giving thanks. Now, I wonder if I could get into this by just asking you a question. This is a genuine question. Who do you think is the most sought after, the most in demand, the most downloaded, the most viewed, most popular Christian preacher in the world today? You might say, uh, I know, somebody who's kind of impressive. Maybe somebody who's got a great education. Or you might say, no, no, it would need to be someone who's quite young and kind of televisual, you know, someone who looks impressive, you know, to command the millions of people to watch them. Maybe, I mean, I'm going to put it out there. I reckon most people in the room are assuming this person is a man. But actually, the most sought after, the most downloaded, the most viewed, the most famous, the most popular Christian preacher in the world today is a 76-year-old grandma. Yeah. And one of the reasons why she's so in demand is because of what she's found in this verse. Ephesians 5, verse 20. Now, I'm not going to get into any detail now because some of you know this story anyway and others of you can find out. But suffice to say that for the first 18 years of Joyce Hutchinson's life. Well, put it this way, I can't imagine a worse start in life for any girl than her start in life. And when, at the age of 18, she finally managed to escape from her father's clutches, which she did by marrying the first man who came along to get out of the home that she'd been raised in, the difficulty with marrying the first man who comes along is that he could be anyone. 
And in fact, this particular guy, well, he was, first of all, he ran around with other women after they got married, and then he was also, he was in and out of trouble with the police, in and out of uh, prison and whatnot, and uh, one, here's an example. One night, she wakes up in the night, and the reason she wakes up is she can feel her arm is being tugged, her hand is being tugged. She wakes up, it's her husband trying to steal her wedding ring off her finger because he's going to try and sell it to repay some of his debts. So he like disappears for months on end because he's going around with these other women. One of the things he encourages her to do is to steal paychecks from her employer. So she's stealing money from her boss at work, and then the two of them will go off to Vegas, and they'll blow the money in Vegas. I mean, by this stage, they've got a son. They've got a kid. And then he goes away again with this other woman, but this time he doesn't come back, so they get divorced. So now she's 23 years old. She's a single mum. She's got this kid, and... Then another guy comes into her life, completely different sort of character, very steady, eddy, stable kind of guy called Dave Meyer. And uh, anyway, she's now 33 years old, 10 years later, and she's still got all these unresolved issues from her terrible upbringing, and she's brought all of this pain hurt into her marriage, and although they've now had several children, it's like a, the marriage is like a war zone because she's still got all this stuff that she's never processed that she's now dumping on him. And it's like incredibly difficult. And then when she's 33, she's driving home from work one day. This is in 1976. And she has this encounter with God in the car as she's driving home from work. And what she does next is she that, she's, plays um, tenpin bowling in, in a bowling league. You know, this is in the Midwest in America, yeah? So she's in this bowling league in, in St. Louis, Missouri. And that night at the, at the, at the bowling alley, she realizes, I, I reckon, now I've had this experience of God, I reckon if I study the Bible, maybe I'll find some help in the Bible to help me with all of my stuff, all of my issues from my upbringing, from my childhood. So she starts to study the Bible, and she finds this verse. She finds Ephesians 5.20, and here's what she does with it. She thinks, I'm supposed to give thanks to God the Father for everything. So she starts thinking about her life. Can I thank God for my parents? No. No, I can't thank God for my parents. Okay, let's try something else. Can I thank God for all the times I've had happy memories? She realizes she's never, ever been happy, ever, in her whole life. So she can't thank God for that. So she's literally racking her brains, and then she thinks, hang on a minute, it rained last night. I didn't get wet. Thank you, God, that you put this object on the top of my house called a roof. So thank you that when it rained, I didn't get wet. Then she thinks, hang on a minute. I ate a hot dinner yesterday. God, thank you that I had a hot meal yesterday. Oh, wow, I live in this country where there's like this hot and cold running water. God, thank you that I live in a country that has hot and cold running water. Thank you, there's this thing called electricity that when I do this with the lights, this is what she's doing. She's trying to think of stuff. She actually says out loud, God, thank you that I have arms and legs. Now, you might be listening to this saying, Adrian, I, I get the point, yeah? You might be thinking, what about those people who don't have arms and legs? What about those people who are born, and when they're born, they're born without arms and legs? That's a really good point. I've read that there are actually seven people alive today who were born without arms and legs. Nick Vujicic is one of those seven people. Now, his parents were born in the former Yugoslavia. They emigrated to Australia, so Nick is an Aussie. When he's born... His parents have no prior warning that they're going to be giving birth to a boy who has no arms and no legs. It's a complete shock 
when he's born. Yeah? When Nick was born, his dad reacted by running into the corridor and vomiting. When the nurse picked up baby Nick and offered Nick to his mother, his mother rejected him. At the age of eight, Nick tries to drown himself, tries to commit suicide by drowning. He fails. He floats to the surface. Now, you may have already anticipated the rest of the story. Later on in life, Nick Vujicic learns about this God who loves him, who sent Jesus to die for him, how he can have a new life in Christ. Nick becomes a Christian, and then he starts telling other people about how much God has done for him, that he's forgiven all of his sins, that he's got a loving Heavenly Father, that he's going to go to heaven when he dies. He starts to tell others. And today, Nick is a mighty evangelist. He goes all over the world seeing hundreds of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Incidentally, you may be interested to know that he's married uh, and they have a, a lovely family. Here's a famous quote from Nick Vujicic. I have the choice to be angry at God for what I don't have. I mean, that's a real choice, don't you think? Hey, there's only seven people on the planet who are born without arms and legs. I get to be one of those seven Hey, what about the 7 billion people that do have arms and legs? It's a, it's a real live option every single morning. It, it feels unfair. And so that's a choice. Nick Vujicic has decided, you know what? Instead, I'm going to choose to thank God for what I do have. All my sins have been forgiven. There's a God who loves me enough to send his son to die for me. And incidentally, he's now got, they've now got four kids. And because I can see you're interested, why don't we just take one minute one minute to look at Nick in action. Watch the screen. I think that deserves a round of applause. Hey, isn't that awesome? So you know what? As we close out our time together, as we leave this place, everyone in this room, we all have a choice, don't we? We can all focus on the things in our life that we really do wish were different. These are real circumstances. No one's making light of them. And if we choose to think about them, well, you know, that's a choice. But you know what? We can choose to do what Joyce Hutchinson did when she was 23, when her husband left her. We can choose to do what Nick Voigt said. We can choose to give thanks for what we do have. We can choose to focus all of our energies, all of our emotional energies into thanking God for what we do have. And as we do, you know, Joyce Meyer's TV program is called Enjoying Everyday Life. Why are millions of people all over the world tuning in? Because Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and life to the full, abundant life. And so people are finding that when I do make this decision, I'm not feeling anything. I'm not feeling like I want to do it. But in cold blood, I'm making a rational decision. I want to enjoy my life more than I do. So I'm going to choose to thank God. I'm going to do Ephesians 5.20. I'm going to focus on the fact there's a roof over my head. Yeah, I want to be out of rented. I want to own my own home. But at least I've got a roof over my head. Oh, yeah, I wish I had to. But you know, I'm focusing on all the things that we have got. And then that feeling of gratitude starts to well up and we start to feel we're enjoying our life more. I mean, our circumstances haven't changed. All the things that we wish were different are exactly the same. They have not changed, but I've changed. This is my story. I've changed. I've begun to feel the benefit 
of all Jesus Christ has done for me. I'm living a life where, yeah, I've got hands. I've got feet. I've got arms and legs. When I want to walk somewhere, I can. Or whatever it is for you. I'm beginning to feel the benefit. I'm walking into the abundant life that Jesus died for me to have. And as you and I do this, in a few moments when we leave this place, I see you overcoming obstacles. I see you defeating disappointments. I see you walking into all that God has for you. I see you overcoming adversity and becoming all that God has called you to be. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ, for this sacrifice that you've already made through your wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we leave this place, Lord, help us to walk into all the good of what you've done for us. In a few moments, we'll be able to do something practical to remind ourselves of what you've done for us. As we take communion, as we take the bread and the wine, we're reminding ourselves of what you've already done for us, that your body was broken for us on the cross as we eat the bread, that your blood was shed for us on the cross as we drink the wine. Thank you, Lord, for what you've already done for us in Jesus Christ. We want to be a grateful people. Thank you, Lord. Should we stand together? Let's sing. Let's come before him. Even if the only thing you can think of right now, thank you, Jesus, that you died for me on the cross. Your body was broken for me. Your blood was shed for me. If that's the only thing you can thank God for, pour all of your energies into that. If it's a practical thing, pour all of your energies into that. Let's choose to be grateful. Let's choose to be grateful. Thank you, Lord.